0: Somewhere around 10,000 Mexican citizens every week cross the border into the United States to sell their plasma, because selling plasma for money is banned in all but five countries in the world, and the United States is by far the biggest one of those. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a
1: radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Kathleen McLaughlin, author of Blood Money, the story of life, death, and profit inside America's blood industry. This book is the result of a decade of investigations into America's plasma economy. It's a term coined by China during the 90s, when plasma extraction, lauded by the Chinese government as a way into wealth and prosperity, aided in the age HIV-AIDS epidemic there. The plasma economy here in the U.S. has learned a few lessons from China, but it is, as Kathleen writes in her book, spread across hundreds of communities wherever economic conditions have become tough enough to drive people to sell pieces of themselves. Blood Money braids Kathleen's own experiences and dependence on plasma with a deep dive into the big business of plasma and the millions of Americans who strapped for cash are forced to depend on them. Kathleen McLaughlin is an award-winning journalist who reports and writes about the consequences of economic inequality around the world. She is a former night Science Journalism Fellow at MIT, and has won multiple awards for her reporting on labor in China. Blood Money is her first book. Kathleen, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to The Right Question. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to start our conversation the same way that you start the book, so perhaps we can
0: begin with the reading. Uh, Will you read from the beginning of Blood Money? Sure. Uh, This is from the prologue, which is called Smuggling Blood. I plunged into the world of international smuggling with the stroke of a pen. It was 2004 in Shanghai and I had just told the first of many lies about the contents of my luggage. I had concealed in my suitcases a dozen glass vials of medication made from human blood extracted from people living elsewhere in the world. The Chinese government had banned exactly this, imported blood and products made from blood, Decades earlier, in the midst of a deadly crisis born partly of human blood. The corridors of Shanghai Pudong International Airport, a polished, shining colossus of marble walkways, metal beams, and glass walls stood tall, in contrast to the low-rent, soft-sided lunch coolers slung over each of my shoulders. I trudged through long, crowded halls to the customs inspection station. When my turn came, I handed a stern formal agent in a black cap my papers. The first was a small boxy entry card with my name and other personal details. The second was longer, a customs entry document with a series of detailed questions about the contents of my luggage. Despite all the detailed documents required, those bags were never physically inspected. In the dozens of times I traveled in and out of China, my bags were never searched by anyone, something I would depend on. Seeing my check in the no column to a question about carrying human blood, The agent stamped my U.S. passport, and I was free to go. I walked back into the country where I worked and lived—China. It was that easy to start smuggling blood, and simple to continue doing it for years. Back home in the United States a day earlier, I gently packed the clear, breakable glass vials into my purple picnic coolers. Half the vials contained a syrupy liquid. The other half held dried white nuggets made of human immune particles extracted from blood plasma. I tucked the glass bottles inside soft clothes and socks, a little insurance against them being broken in the baggage hold. Days or weeks later, when I finally needed it, a white uniformed nurse in a Shanghai hospital would mix the solids with the liquids, then infuse the resulting syrup into my vein. Before that, I had to move these vials along with my own vein catheter needles, IV bags, tubing lines to the other side of the world. I knew I was breaking the law, but it didn't seem like that big of a deal. This is such a dramatic entrance
1: into the story of this book. Um, you, You read a little bit about why you had to smuggle blood into China. You read a little bit about why that was necessary for you to do so. But will you go into more detail about exactly why it was necessary for you specifically to smuggle this blood into China and the
0: the systems that facilitated or necessitated uh, that happening? About 20 years ago, I was diagnosed with a very rare autoimmune disease that's actually pretty easy. I wouldn't say easy, but it's treatable. Um, But the treatment is very strange. It's a a medication that's made from other people's immune particles drawn from their blood plasma. I knew when I moved to China that their blood supply was not safe because in the 90s, they had had a huge HIV and AIDS scandal that had been created through the paid plasma extraction economy. So in the 90s, China started a scheme to pay poor people for their blood plasma and then turn it into a global commodity. Within about a year and a half, they had HIV circulating through the plasma system and Somewhere in the millions of Chinese people were infected with HIV through the the paid plasma economy. Um, I say somewhere in the neighborhood of because we still don't know the true number. The government has pretty successfully covered up the number. But it had, by the time I moved to China in the early 2000s, it had been well enough documented and reported that I knew there was a serious safety problem with their blood and plasma supply that you couldn't rely on human blood products in that country because they had had this HIV scandal. There were also ongoing concerns about um, hepatitis C being spread through medications like the one that I took. So I needed to smuggle my own drugs in. Now, at the time, it just didn't, I say it didn't seem like a big deal. It really didn't. It was just a thing that I did to kind of get by. And China was very different when I first moved there. It was much more they were entering this period that was sort of in the heart of the opening up of the economy. And it was much more, um, I would say easygoing, but it was. You know, the borders were pretty flexible. Um, you could bring stuff in and out without a whole lot of trouble. There was just, it was a lot less stringent and strict and authoritarian than it is now. So I was there in a particular period when this was possible. I don't think I'd be able to do it now. Right.
1: Tell listeners what China's extraction industry or plasma extraction industry has to do with us here in the United States. Then, what it has taught us, and maybe this this second part is something we can relegate to later in the conversation. But I but I'd love it if if you could tell listeners what it taught us as Americans, um, who now have our own plasma economy, um, and our own circumstances here in the states.
0: Yeah. Well, for me, I, so I lived in China for about 15 years full-time, and I spent a lot of time reporting on health and science issues and also labor issues and poverty while I was there. And so I was did a lot of stories about the plasma economy and the ripple effects and the people that had gotten drawn into it. And... I had, I think, developed the naivety that a lot of people get when they live outside their home country, which is I probably idealized the United States quite a bit. So while I was living in China, I kind of had this thought of, oh, only China would create something called the plasma economy that's an entire industry based around the blood of people who aren't wealthy. Um, When I returned to the United States, I met the two women who had been whistleblowers on the plasma economy who basically— sounded the alarm that there was HIV circulating within the plasma system, and they both had to flee to the United States and live in exile because of it. They were both under threat of their lives and safety, and their families were under threat. So I met them here thinking that I would do some kind of a big story about the two of them. And one of them was a woman named Wang Xu Ping, who had been a doctor and researcher in China in the plasma banks, She's the one who found HIV in the system and alerted the government in Beijing. She was chased out of the country for that. I went to see her in Salt Lake in 2016, and we spent several days together talking about what had happened back in China 20 years earlier. And finally, she drove me to a plasma center a few blocks from her house and said, you need to find out what's going on here because I see the same things in this country that I saw back in China in the 90s. They are drawing in too many people. It's going too fast. And she didn't have a specific sort of alarm like this is what's going to happen here. She was just really concerned that the same system she had seen in China that was preying on poor people was was existing in her neighborhood in the United States. And so she felt like someone needed to look into it. Um, Because I rely on this drug that's made from other people's blood— It was very personal to me. And so that's how I started investigating what was going on in the United States. But like I said, I thought that I had—I thought that China would be the only country foolish enough to try something like this. But the fact was the United States was doing it all along. Let's talk about that phrase, like this. What exactly
1: do we mean when we're saying plasma economy? What are we talking about when we're talking about the social systems— in America that are failing its citizens and allowing this to actually happen. It's Mm -hmm. happening, as you said, like right around the corner in our neighborhood. Um, What are we talking about when we're talking about this economy?
0: It's very normalized. So um, somewhere around 20 million Americans sell their plasma every year for money. And that's that's a rough estimate, but that's drawn from the total volume of plasma that's collected in the U.S., it's a major American export. We export more human blood plasma than soybeans. It's the the industry itself is over $20 billion a year. It's a global commodity. So we have turned the economic hardship of people in the United States. It's been pretty well documented. I mean, wages don't keep pace with inflation. The cost of higher education is out of hand. Medical costs are out of hand. Housing costs are out of hand. And what has happened is in many places that have high degrees of economic hardship or high numbers of college students or high numbers of people who simply can't keep pace with the cost of living, you see plasma centers pop up. And this income has taken the place of what used to be decent wages and a robust social safety net in the United States. There's also... A tangential population that isn't that's related to this, which is somewhere around 10,000 Mexican citizens every week cross the border into the United States to sell their plasma because selling plasma for money is banned in all but five countries in the world, and the United States is by far the biggest one of those. So we have created this underground economy that relies on the economic precarity of millions of people in the United States. You cover this briefly
1: in Blood Money, but I found myself wanting more clarification. Let's talk about the fact that plasma is paid for and blood is
0: not. Why, why, why is there that discrepancy? There is no good answer. It's just a thing that we decided in the 1970s could happen, that Blood donations shouldn't be paid, and plasma is okay. And I said most of the rest of the world bans paid plasma. That's because international health agencies have recommended against paying people for their plasma because it can be exploitative. This, you know, if you're paying someone for their body parts, there's a certain amount of exploitation in there. So the rest of the world, apart from five countries, has banned this practice, And we have just decided there's three things that you can get paid for in the United States, blood plasma, sperm, and eggs. And we have just carved out exemptions for those body parts. And I I mean, I can't—I wish I had a better explanation, but it's kind of just because. Plasma in particular, I think, is interesting. That's, you know, far and away the most common thing that people sell— Um, It's an interesting one because it has been stigmatized to a degree that most people assume it's only the poorest of the poor who are doing it, which is totally untrue. So I interviewed more than 100 people for this book who sell plasma, and I found a whole lot of middle-class people do it for any number of different reasons. A ton of college students, but a lot of just working middle class people do it to make up where their wages don't keep pace anymore. So I think that, and and it's also, you know, it is this gray market. It has tagged as compensation for your time. So it is not categorized as labor. You could pay income taxes on it if you wanted to file those, but anyone who's selling plasma is not looking to pay extra taxes. So you have for profit plasma companies that are running this industry that don't want more attention. They don't want more scrutiny on what they're doing. And then you have people who are selling plasma who need the money, who don't want the system to get shut down. And I think those two things have combined to keep it a little bit underground from mainstream conversations and protected it from a lot of scrutiny otherwise. Very interesting to me, um, when I'm with, I was with a group of people recently at a gathering, and they were older, and I would say on the whole on the wealthier side of the economic bracket, and not one of them had ever heard of selling plasma. But then when I talk to people who are younger and come from lower economic brackets, don't make as much money, they know all about it. So it's really kind of a dividing line in class in the United States. You're listening to a
1: conversation with Kathleen McLaughlin, author of Blood Money. I'm Lauren Korn, This episode of The Right Question is supported by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary and community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found online at chapteronebookstore.com. In the book you stood outside plasma extraction centers um, around the country and had many, many
0: conversations on social media. You just said you spoke with how many people? More than 100. I think it was 107 in total. I'd have to look at my little spreadsheet, but it was more than 100. Right.
1: And a lot of your book really centers around what you term geotargeting. So let's talk about geotargeting of plasma extraction centers. Um, You write in much of the book's first part about the Mountain West— that up until recently, it wasn't really an ideal place for these centers. Uh, that's changing. Let's talk about first geotargeting, but then let's talk about specifically our region here, the the Rocky Mountain West, and, and what's changing here when it comes to plasma.
0: Sure. So there have been studies that show plasma centers tend to proliferate in poorer zip codes. It's a thing. And you can look at a map of where these places are in the United States. And just for clarity, I'm talking about the plasma centers that are run by the three or five-ish for-profit companies that are paying people for their plasma. So the big hot spots are the Rust Belt um, Michigan, Ohio, you know, these places that once had really big populations of pretty solid middle-class, working-class jobs that have really declined. Um, Another one is the U.S.-Mexico border, and that's because it is such a draw for Mexican citizens to come into the U.S. to earn this money. Um, The South, but yeah, the Mountain West was— Up until pretty recently, kind of a blank spot on the plasma map. And Missoula's always had a plasma center, of course, because Missoula's always had a lot of lower-income people. And so there's been one here for years and years and years. Bozeman's first one just opened about a year and a half ago. They didn't have one. So just in Montana alone. And that's the other thing. So to get a plasma center, you need a fairly large population. You also need a large population of people who need money. So... I'll give you a comparison. Missoula has about, what, 80,000 people now? Yeah, it's probably crawling higher, but yeah, 80,000 is probably accurate. Um, Flint, Michigan, used to have a lot more. They're down to about 75,000 now. Missoula has one plasma center. Flint has six. So you can really see which of those towns is struggling more economically.
1: But then there's also this idea of young people, right? Plasma centers really target college students who – perhaps are living in uh, smaller towns that don't have a lot of part-time jobs for them to have during the school year. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe someone doesn't have that help paying for school or textbooks or even just fun outside of school. A lot of college students are donating their plasma.
0: And so, yeah, yeah. Bozeman and Missoula here in Montana make a lot of sense. Right. So there's Bozeman, Missoula, Great Falls, and Billings all have plasma centers in Montana now. So the bigger population centers. Kalispell doesn't have one, and I think that's because the population is much older. So Bozeman and Missoula have the younger population because of the universities. And that's really a thing. You will see... These centers geo-target college towns like crazy. It's such a big thing. Let's talk about what that looks like. How do they target
1: young people and college students? Are they, uh, they send flyers out? What, what does that actually
0: look like when you're in those towns? Flyers. Billboards. um, It becomes kind of a cultural thing. So the place that I spent a lot of time is Rexburg, Idaho, which is home to Brigham Young University, Idaho. I believe they have about ten thousand students. It's a Mormon college. It's kind of the secondary to BYU in Utah. Um, Most of their students come from this region. So you're looking at lower economic situations to begin with. In Rexburg, there are I believe it's thirty-five thousand residents and two plasma centers, which is the ratio there is pretty wild. You don't see places of 35,000 people with two plasma centers unless it's a major university. So there's a there's a Rexburg kind of influencer um, clothing and accessory place on Instagram, and a lot of their Rexburg-branded stuff has things like T-shirts that say, "'Plasma pays my tuition.'" Or they'll have this all, I mean, this is very much a thing in Rexburg. So I heard um, from one person about a family whose, their daughter was turning 18 and they had the party at the plasma center because they wanted to get her in so she could make her first plasma money. And I think that Rexburg is very interesting because there was very little stigma around it there compared to other places I went to in the U.S. It was just pretty open. And The kids were fine talking about it. They were fine doing it, and they just didn't think it was that big of a deal. I mean, some of them felt very sick from doing it, but they didn't think that was a big deal. So I think with younger people, because this practice has become so normalized, there's almost a cynicism that comes with it now. You know, I'll meet people who are in college now, friends of family members who— think that I'm overreacting for saying maybe this isn't the safest thing to do, like selling your plasma twice a week, every week, the entire time you're in college. Like maybe you should dial that back a little bit. So it's become normalized and people who are doing it are very protective of that income source, which I understand. So there's a geo-targeting
1: that is targeting uh lower income areas. There's the geotargeting that is uh targeting younger people, university students who are uh, strapped for cash. Did you find at all that there was an a geo targeting towards, like BYU Idaho, altruistic communities around sure. churches and, and larger uh religious populations?
0: Well, So, Rexburg is interesting because it is more than 90% Mormon, the town itself. Um, I spoke to a Mormon friend about this, or an ex-Mormon friend, who told me that basically it fits, selling plasma fits a certain Mormon ideal because you are doing something altruistic, but you're also earning money at the same time. It's a very pragmatic outlook on income and altruism. So, I think there is, I mean, anecdotally, I can tell you that I have heard of plasma companies targeting specifically heavily Mormon places because it's a fit for those communities. I don't know that I've seen them so much in other religious areas. Wouldn't be surprised if there was a crossover in the South though. Um, Mm. One thing about the geotargeting that's interesting though is because of the way America is unequal, economic inequality often goes hand in hand with racial inequality. So you have communities that are targeted that tend to be less white or non-white in the case of Flint, Michigan or El Paso, Texas. Rexburg is really an outlier because it's almost entirely white and almost entirely Mormon. But the other places I went to were majority non-white. And that tends to be, you know, a spinoff of the plasma economy targeting places that are poorer is they end up targeting communities that are also not white. I'm going to pivot a little
1: bit um, and talk or ask a little bit more about your own relationship to this whole thing. You you mentioned at the beginning that you were diagnosed with an immune disorder, and that's really kind of your stakes in all of this. You Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't have gotten so deep into this research had it not affected you directly directly. Will you talk about those complicated feelings? I feel like the the feelings are really the the crux of the research and, and, and the reason for this book's appearance in the world. Um, but I'm wondering how you grapple with those feelings all the time, especially now that you know all of this information about the extraction industry. Yeah,
0: it's been very—I mean, I guess I've been a journalist for 30 years, so— My coping strategy for things that are bothering me socially is to do deep investigative reporting on them. And I think that's what happened here. Wasn't necessarily deliberate, but I kind of couldn't get this out of my mind. And I have these infusions, you know, several times a year, and I think about it the entire time. The thing that caught me is my infusions now cost $15,000 a dose. I know that people who are selling plasma get about 20 or 25 bucks every time they donate. There's a lot of profit in the middle. Now, obviously, there's some manufacturing in the middle. It's, I'm not getting a one to one plasma infusion, but there's a lot of money in this industry. And so it really was a matter of trying to figure out because the industry is exploiting people on one end and it, it's exploiting me on the other end. I don't believe any medication should cost $15,000 dose. In the wealthiest country in the world. So, I really wanted to find out what was going on that allowed exploitation at both ends of the healthcare system. I mean, I think that I've had people ask me if I was worried that my reporting might jeopardize my medication source, but I guess I don't really care. I don't, I have a hard time living peacefully with the knowledge that there are millions of Americans who don't make enough money and so they have to sell their body parts in order to get by. You just mentioned kind of the attention that your book has been getting
1: and friends asking if, if you're worried about it. And I'm wondering what kinds of conversations you've been having along the way throughout this past year um, since your book has been published. If you see its publication as a catalyst for change in some way, are you seeing those conversations reaching, you know, the big business that
0: this book is coming up against? I'm, I'm wondering how you see it actually facilitating change. That's a good question. And I've thought about that too. So most of the conversations that I have had are people telling me that they've sold plasma. You know, and this is even friends and family members that I didn't know had done it have told me now, oh, I did this for three years. Or, you know, people want to talk about it when they realize that you understand what it is and you're not judging them for doing that. I also think there is a whole kind of subpopulation who are just interested in the topic because a lot of people don't know anything about it, but it it involves so many members of American society that they want to know what's going on. I think that in terms of affecting change, I mean, I don't think we're getting rid of the paid plasma economy. It's too embedded in our society. Like, if I had a wand that I could wave that could fix everything, I would— raise everyone's wages and, you know, lower the cost of higher education and fix the healthcare system and do all of this so that people wouldn't be financially desperate and need to go to these extremes to do that. Um, The thing to keep in mind about this industry, I guess, that I want to say is we're not just providing plasma for the United States. This is a global export. We are We are the largest source provider of human blood plasma in the world. So people in America are being essentially mined for their parts to make a profitable product that's sold all around the world. So I think that that's something we should look at. But if we're going to keep the system and allow people to earn money on their blood, they should make a lot more money. Because right now, most of that money is going somewhere in the middle. Most of the money between where I spend $15,000 per treatment and donors are getting $25, the amount in the middle is going somewhere else. So I think that donors should get paid a lot more. And forgive me if I'm misremembering or
1: misunderstanding how you laid this out in the book, but it behooves plasma donors to donate multiple times because the more you donate, the more money you get from it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's like everything else in American life. It's been gamified. So you download your app for your plasma center, And you get points and incentives and bonuses and referral points. So the ideal plasma donor goes twice a week for years and years and years on end. You get bonuses for making it eight times in a month, for example. You earn more on the second donation in a week than you would on the first donation. And somehow we say this isn't labor. We say it's a token of appreciation for your time, but it's very- that was Kathleen McLaughlin,
1: author of Blood Money, out in paperback from Atria and One Signal Publishers, imprints of Simon and Schuster. Look for more information about Kathleen at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyle's and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided in part by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.